Hi, I'm May, and you're listening to Now It Now, a podcast about parents and carers figuring out how to act on climate while navigating their work and family life. This episode is in partnership with Australian Parents for Climate Action. Today we're talking to Jasper, a dentist who lives in Adelaide on Ghana country with his wife and eight-year-old son. I'd heard of Jasper's reputation as such an effective operator that people were baffled. How does he get it all done? So this episode is jam-packed. We're covering making change at work, going for local winds and EVs and recycling, and finally engaging politicians with Australian parents for climate action. Let's get going. Here's Jasper on how he got started. Well, I'm uh, Sydney born and raised. Uh, Our son was born in 2014, and at that time, I just decided on doing a career change to become a dentist. The dental school that accepted me was in Adelaide. And when we arrived, we just kind of noticed that was a very different way that people were approaching sustainability. People seem to have a a lot closer connection to things like where their food came from and an appreciation for things in the natural environment that I wasn't seeing after living in uh, the inner city of Sydney. So that was a bit of a shock to me. The first thing that I remember was actually we were staying in Airbnb as we were just kind of getting settled and trying to find a rental property. And our host had solar panels on a roof. She had a heat pump. And then as part of her little introduction spiel to the unit that we're staying at, she actually kind of showed us a compostable Fogo bin. And I was like, what is this? But one thing that sort of really brought it into focus was the blackout that occurred about a year later, 2016. I remember coming home and all of a sudden the power went out and it stayed out for a day. (laughs) And I think it brought into, I guess, my consciousness, the big energy transition that was happening within South Australia, how South Australia was an award leader in renewables and climate action. And that spurred for me quite a lot of interest because at the time we were renting and just the power bills were absolutely astronomical as a result of a state that obviously was in that transition process, but also very highly dependent on gas. So part of my journey really started off in sort of bread and butter sort of issues, which was like my energy bills are really high. What can I do about it? Uh, and as a renter, you know, um, you, you can only do so much. And so when we finally bought our house about a year later, it was a bit of a catalyst for me to be able to make a lot of these improvements that, that you could do as a homeowner. So I think that was really kind of where I started along this journey. It's about your household, about what you can do as an individual. It was probably more around that sort of 2018-19 period where I kind of went, well, actually, It's great that I'm informed. It's great there's people around me who are really interested in these issues, but I very much got the sense that we were still a minority, you know, a bleeding edge sort of early adopters, if you will. And the way that we really moved the needle in terms of Australia's emissions and our contribution to climate action around the world is systems change, uh, which means that you inevitably have to make change at the political level to get businesses, to get industry groups, to get communities all moving on it. Because, you know, as an individual, you can only do so much. There's a whole thing about 80-20 rule. You can do so much about your own house and then everything else there is extremely time consuming or expensive, where it's actually more beneficial to actually spend your time helping other people and wider society to actually make those changes as well. And it wasn't just the blackout. Can you talk us through the weather events that you saw? The summers in Adelaide are actually really hot. When we arrived in 2015, were some of the hottest summers ever in Australia and, and globally as well. You would actually kind of get weeks and weeks and weeks where the needle just stays above 30. Uh, when you park your car at a shopping centre and have to walk through like 200 metres of like asphalt, it literally feels like a furnace. If we want to do things, we have to do it before like 10 o'clock. Because actually by the middle of the day, but it's actually too hot to do anything. We kind of went, well, that's now. We're sort of starting to see the climate warm up. What happens if we're in the middle of a drought? All these things sort of added up. And, you know, overall, you kind of evaluate and kind of go, this actually has a real 
impact on quality of life. You know, you think about other people as well, who might be elderly people, people who are renting, people who might be not doing so well. And in these sort of conditions, it's actually really detrimental to the quality of life that actually people can actually die from, from, from heat stress. Yeah. And there was also an apartment in Sydney that you were living in? Yeah, this is a crazy story. So we moved into a apartment literally just off Pine Park in the middle of the CBD. Our apartment block faced west. And literally in the second week that we moved into this apartment was Sydney's hottest ever day. I think it was about 45 degrees or something. Absolutely insane. It made the house too hot to actually live in. Like I pretty much couldn't sleep that night because the apartment was so hot. Literally after about two months, we actually broke the lease. We actually went to the, the real estate agent and went, you know, we actually can't live in this house. And did it kind of make you feel um, like a small part of the natural world or, or like how did you see yourself then after walking through all these events? I think it made me appreciate a lot more about my impact. I think up until that point, particularly living in Sydney, you're abstracted away from where your food comes from, where your energy comes from. And to a certain extent, yeah, it's part of inner city living. Things are just arrive packaged for you. And I think you get captured in sort of the rigmarole of like day-to-day life. If you're earning good money, you've got a good job. Basically, the default uh, route for everyone is to consume more. Go on more overseas holidays, have those experiences posted on Instagram and, and everything else so I, I think that was very easy for us to kind of be in that pattern um, but I think that was just pretty normal to be perfectly honest in terms of the trajectory that everyone was sort of living at, at that time. And you found yourself in New York during the big school strikes there what was that like? In that sort of 2019 period you know everyone was starting to get very concerned about these really hot conditions that we're having in Australia and a lot of parents just kind of going I've done things for myself but I kind of feel it's not enough. I feel there's an urgency in regards to what the world will look like for our kids in 20, 30, 40 years time. And we just don't feel like the barometer in terms of the political climate uh, in 2019 was where we needed to be. And I think with the school strikes, just seeing young people sort of really express this like very emotionally, uh, but also uh, I think having the clarity of vision to actually stand up and say, hey, this is important for us to you know, do something about it, I think was a bit of a clarion call for myself and other parents to kind of go, hey, look, uh, yeah, this is actually something that, that I want to be involved with because I care about it. And if we're not getting the action that we need, I need to be, I need to be that agent of change as well. So my wife, she was actually busy at work in New York. We, we decided to tag along for the ride. And as it turns out, that was the same time as the school strikes were happening in New York. And, and Greta had sailed across from, from Europe to be a part of it and address the UN uh, General Assembly. And we rocked up in, in lower Manhattan and, and walked for hours uh, with heaps of young people. It was really exciting. Was there something that she said in particular that really um, kind of reverberated for you? She, I think she was not deferential to power in the way that I think a lot of us say, well, there's a lot of lip service paid to climate action, but you kind of know that when a leader says something, it, it's not enough. And I think that what she managed to convey was just that clarity of vision of actually saying, here are the problems, this is what we need to do and to demand leaders to do more. Uh, and so I thought that was very inspiring. I think the thing that's really interesting is that you're walking a lot of different paths at once recently. Professionally, in your work as a dentist, you're also agitating, I guess you might say. What are you doing there? About three years ago, one of the other members of Australian Parents is also a dentist. Her name's uh, Dr. Karim Nang. So we kind of sat down and we're actually kind of going, well, actually, how how does this apply to our profession? We're very much a nine-to-five sort of business. So there's certainly an energy usage issue, but also appreciating that our profession produced a lot of waste. I looked at the back of our dental practice and I'm like, oh my gosh, we've got like, you know, how many landfill bins that get filled 
full of plastic, most of which is not actually soiled by human contamination at all. And that sort of got us quite concerned. So we're trying to look through our industry with a sustainability lens. And part of that was actually sort of going to our member organization, the ADA, and saying, hey, look, we feel this is important and we'd like to create a group where we can start discussing these issues, start educating our members and potentially starting to advocate for change as well. Were they quite open to that? No. So here's the funny thing is, again, South Australia being super progressive with environmental stuff is that when we actually contacted the CEO, he was actually, oh, no, no, no. I actually had this on my like to-do list, my strategic plan. And I'm like, Great. Well, can we get started then? He's like, yeah, 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 cool. Let's do it. And over the course of the last two years, we've basically been writing articles to inform our member base. This year, what we did was we actually engaged an external consultant to do an audit of the organization as a whole and to basically provide a framework that the ADA could move towards a carbon neutral status. What's happening next year, which is really exciting, is that we're actually going to be doing an audit of several practices in our state and providing that as a benchmark and providing, I guess, these case studies as a way that practices can actually say, hey, here are the 10 or 20 things that our practice can do to become more sustainable. So that's really exciting. And, uh, and we had a Q&A session with our members a couple of months ago, uh, and it was only supposed to go for like an hour and it went for like two and a half hours because everyone had questions. It's not, a, it's not an easy thing to navigate. There are actually a lot of materials which are really hard to know what to deal with. And, you know, certainly we don't have all the answers. But I'm really excited that our members are actually asking the right questions and that people want to get involved. And you also organised a tree planting. I was wondering if that was about bringing people together. This is through the Dental Association. Or was it about trying to reduce that compartmentalised thinking about your role? So we had several pillars for, uh, I guess, what we defined as sustainable dental practice. And one of those pertained to the natural world. So I didn't want the actions that we did to be very technocentric. I think it's important to actually reconnect with the natural world. You know, everything that underpins human civilization and human flourishing all depends on a healthy biosphere. So part of that was saying, hey, let's do something where we can live that. So the organization that we supported is a, a non-for-profit called BioR. So the issue with a lot of uh, carbon credits and uh, tree planting exercise, I should say, is they're done in a fairly piecemeal fashion, but it's actually not large enough to actually sustain a habitat for all this flora and fauna to return. What BioR do, which is really exciting, is they've basically been able to get a previous farming property, which has since returned to Crown Land. And they've been able to fence the entire thing to allow both the tree canopy and the understory growth to get established before you reintroduce everything in. And so when I, when we heard about that, we were really excited because we're just kind of like, it actually feels like a more holistic solution. And it feels like one that can scale really well and actually provide the outcomes that we're looking for. Ah, that's really amazing that you dug into that detail. There's an enormous amount of facts around climate that can seem overwhelming. How did you start to wade in there and what are the tools that you used and, and who did you connect with? Part of it really for me was actually kind of going, look, if I don't have the facts, I'm actually happy to go and read at length until I understand, uh, which I get not everyone's going to be able to do because we're all very time poor sort of people, but I kind of get a I kind of get a bit of a buzz out of that because I'm actually no no my curiosity is not sated until I have a very clear answer and if someone's brought something and I can't explain it I actually want to understand why I don't understand it is there merit to the point they're making or is actually what they're saying untrue and there's better evidence out there to support it and what did you feel after you'd done this deep dive into all the facts it's head knowledge so I think part of that is about actually using that to benefit other people 
So there's a group of climate activists that write to various letters to the editor on climate issues. And that's very important work because there is a lot of misinformation within the mainstream media. Uh, the audience that we're really trying to convince is actually the, the undecideds or the, the, the quite unspoken majority who I think are more influenced if the overall tone of the commentary out there is one that's affirming of climate action rather than one which is dominated by negative voices. Even though climate deniers only make up about 5 to 8% of the population, they're a very noisy bunch. So part of actually communicating climate well is actually being able to be that voice of reason and to actually provide facts and, and uh, convincing arguments to, to people about why this is an important issue and why we should care. And you spoke about that as head knowledge. Is there a heart knowledge that you also try and communicate? To be honest, I, I reckon I'm probably somewhere on the spectrum. So part of my tenacity around this, is, uh, which is beneficial in the sort of sphere is actually not being too heavily emotionally involved. I've seen like definitely a, a climate grief and anxiety and climate fatigue from a lot of fellow travelers along this journey. But I think for myself, actually not being as emotionally involved has actually given me a bit of a thicker skin to just keep going and keep piling on. Uh, but, you know, I'm still very emotionally invested because obviously uh, we have an eight-year-old son and, you know, uh, he's been given every good opportunity on, on this earth to to thrive in terms of the opportunities that uh, my wife and I have been able to provide for him. But I can't change the climate for him, uh, which is then important for me. If he was to ask me in 20 or 30 years time, Dad, what did you do to make the, the world better? Uh, I have a clear conscience to say, well, you know, I, I really did try my best for you. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I did the change where I could in in the position that I was at. So... Um, but very much for me, I, I feel like there is a legacy that's important for us as parents to leave. And, you know, despite the busyness that we have in our family lives, I've made this a priority for me to just say, hey, look, I, here's me doing my part. And is that something you connect with every day, do you feel? I feel so. Do you have a practice that helps you connect <laughs> with it? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not one for affirmations or, or meditation. I, I think I, I've got a lot of friends who keep encouraging me to do that, but that, that's not my jam. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm very much an action-oriented person, so I kind of go if I if I can do one thing today, that's that's what keeps me going. So, so the next project that we're working on at the same time, um, the electric vehicles. You saw a problem and you gathered information and got some things to happen. Can you talk me through that? So, um, I'm a reasonably early adopter of an EV. A lot of people say, oh, I can't possibly get an EV because I can't tow a caravan across the Nullarbor yeah. and I'm like bro I'm never that, that's not a scenario that's even remotely part of my you know my life but I look I understand that that's not for everyone but when we bought it I was aware that one of the key factors for enabling the wider public to kind of adopt EVs was really that charging infrastructure was limited and certainly the more that you can actually provide infrastructure for people, particularly those who may be renters or people that don't have off-street parking, you effectively enable another whole group of people to say, this is now a viable solution for me. In terms of the EV space, I advocated pretty well to the Mitchum Council. Uh, they'd have a fairly progressive group of leaders in there who actually ratified a climate emergency and a climate action plan. So I think the hard work had already been done. You could say that maybe I asked for EV charges partially out of self-interest, so I had somewhere to charge my car uh, at work. But, you know, but again, that's one of those things, right? It's like, well, you know, part of actually saying an EV is doable for most households, do you have somewhere to charge it when you go to work? So I had lobbied basically the, the mayor to say, hey, look, you've got the climate action plan. Part of that is that you want to decrease your transport emissions. 
can you please look at putting charging infrastructure? You know, I'm a local resident, I work in the area, so I kind of feel like these are the places which would be really beneficial. Got a whole bunch of other people to contact the council to say the same. And then lo and behold, six months later, bang, there was an EV charger right where I asked them to put it. So <laughs> that was fun. It's been interesting because since that charger has been there and I've had discussions with friends and patients in the area, that's actually really enabled, you know, about three or four people that I know to actually push the trigger on buying an EV because I go, oh, cool, great. When I go down to the shops and I go and get my groceries, I can charge up at the council charger and I went yes great excellent that's why I asked for it to be put there so that's amazing to get that feedback (laughs) just from your own circle if it's three to four people in your own circle it must be and that's the crazy thing is that uh, what I've just noticed particularly just in the last 18 months it's just a really massive explosion of electric vehicles that have come in my area so I used to play this game with my son so as we're driving along it's like you we had a tally and whoever saw the Tesla first would call out Tesla uh, now, that game was really fun when we went to the US in 2019, because when we went to like San Francisco and Palo Alto, you know, uh, you know, we got into the hundreds and when we came home. It was a little bit depressing at that point because Australia, unfortunately, didn't have very good EV policies, really had poor leadership around that with Scott Morrison's whole rule in the weekend thing. You would literally see a Tesla about once a week and you knew that it was like the same five cars. But it's been really interesting just in the, like the last four years of actually saying, hey, look, I used to see one a week to all of a sudden I'm seeing one or two a day. And then literally yesterday I was driving to work and I saw seven just on the way to work. So it's pretty amazing. Like it's actually it's happening now. It's happening a lot faster than people are expecting. Um, we just really need to hurry up and make sure that we scale the infrastructure and the energy grid to, to match it. When you were lobbying about this, were you contacting them as, as you an individual or were you part of an, a group? Through that whole 2019 period with Australian parents, there was a number of us based in Adelaide. And whilst they're a national body, the local groups is actually where the real lobbying and real action sort of happens. So whether those actions are really at a a very local level in terms of just engaging busy parents to bring their kids to the playgroup, we've started one up here in Adelaide, which is centred around a community garden, which is fantastic. Yeah, I spoke to Claire, actually. Yeah, and there's this delightful local community garden where the kids are just getting their hands dirty, uh, you know, learning about planting things and biology and everything else. I think it's a very, very grounding way to set it up so part of our actions uh, revolve around group activities like this and i think each group finds its own flavor so uh, there's many members of our our group are really keen cyclists who really have uh, advocated very well for e-bikes and cargo bikes as a means of alternative transportation uh, I guess my passions very much lie in renewable energy and electric vehicles. So I guess we all sort of hold our different banners and we sort of lend it support to each other's cause. But one really good thing that we did as a group is that at the beginning of 2020, uh, we sort of said, hey, look, here our focus points. So what are the areas that we as a group are interested in? How are we going to achieve that at a local government, state government and federal government levels? One of them was doing around EVs. I'm probably the one that's probably the most informed about that within our group. But yeah, we support each other. Amazing. And so moving on, one of the projects that you're working on is a local project. Can you talk to us about that? A lot of the things I look for are basically things that I see are just local problems, right? It's like, here's something it could be done better. Why isn't it being done better? And can I actually change anything? Um, So I think part of my whole climate journey has been about not being afraid of actually asking the questions, because sometimes I kind of feel like 
do people actually know that this is a problem or, you know, or do you just have to agitate enough so that it becomes a priority to get done? For this particular problem, it was one where whilst the container deposit scheme was very successful, in public places, uh, it becomes quite difficult. If you're in a public park or in a main street uh, and there isn't an explicit recycle bin available, often these container deposits end up just going straight into the bin. Now, there, there is a, a segment of our community, people who do it a little bit tough, they're trying to basically make a bit of a living out of this. But when I saw these individuals doing this in Rundle Mall, I just kind of thought, hey, man, there has to be a better way for this, right? Like, A, it's not particularly sanitary that they're going through the rubbish. It's not particularly dignified for them to do that. But also, it's really hard to find these containers. So even if they are going through the bins, there's probably like 30% that's sitting at the bottom that they're just not going to get. And yeah, that just adds to landfill. It's actually more cost for the council because they pay per ton in terms of the amount of garbage that goes into landfill. So when I was in Port Lincoln, I was on a dental placement out there. I actually so their local council had this really ingenious solution where they had their public trash bins. And what they'd actually done is they'd bolted on a little stainless steel rail on the side of the bin for people basically just to put those deposit containers in. So they basically, they'll stay out in the open. They're very visible. But then for those members of the community who are collecting these container deposits, you could basically go and grab these containers in a fairly clean and sanitary fashion, take them home to recycle. So went, wow, this is actually really cool. So why isn't this being rolled out elsewhere? And when it brought me back to the Rundle Mall memory that I had, um, I basically went, okay, cool, let's let's do something about this. So uh, there's a very active Facebook community called uh, Reduce, Reuse, Recycle, all the arts, sorry, <laughs> uh, I, I'll get it right one day. Uh, in Adelaide, uh, they're run by some fantastic people who have now become very good friends of mine as well. Uh, so I started a petition and just went, hey, guys, I've seen the solution. It sounds amazing. Let's make it happen. Let's get enough interest here on this petition that we can actually try to get the council to move on it. About four weeks later, the pandemic happened and I was like, oh, no, it, everything sort of went a bit haywire. So it was one of those little projects that went dormant for a good time. But I sort of potted away a bit quietly, just trying to get people to kind of sign this petition. Eventually, we got over 3,000 signatures, which is amazing. And then further down the line, a few years later, as things sort of opened up a little bit more, I kind of revisited the project and just actually went, okay, cool. We've actually got a few new councillors in the city of Adelaide. And I literally just contacted them and said, hey, look, I've run this petition. I think this would be a really good idea. I think it's a win-win for the community overall. It's a win-win for the council. It's a win-win for the people who are doing a bit tough. Can we get this happening? So I, I met up with Councillor Kieran Snapes, and he was very keen to take this on board as something to be put forward as a motion in a council meeting. Basically, the council agreed to do a trial uh, of these bin rails throughout the city, uh, which will be getting deployed this year. Oh, wow. So that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. amazing. And social equality seems to be quite present in this project. How did you connect with that so strongly? Uh, I was brought up Catholic. Uh, my parents are first generation migrants uh, from Malaysia and Hong Kong, but from a, from a Catholic uh, descent. So from very early on, I'd very much connected with the issues of identifying for the plight of the poor and really feeling that a, a just society requires that we lift everyone up. So part of my climate journey really has been also to kind of ensure that we are addressing these very core issues of are the most vulnerable in our society being looked after in terms of as the climate gets hotter, do we have homes which are fit for purpose? Do we have societies which are resilient to make ensure that people's health isn't compromised? Yeah. And do you talk about climate with friends and family? I think a lot of my friends are in the climate movement. I do have friends that don't, you know, who are a bit sceptical and, and I'm happy to keep holding my hands of friendship with them and 
explaining why I believe what I believe. You, you can't convince someone to become an, an activist. That's something that they need to own in terms of their own value set. Being able to get both my parents and sister put solar on their roofs, so that's nice. So it's kind of very much the household practical ways that feel the most comfortable for you to, to talk to them? I would say so, yeah. And I think that's a really good way to demonstrate to family members who might be you know, a lot earlier on in their journey is that you have actually tangible things that you can show them that make sense. Um, my, my family understand why I do what I do. Uh, not all of them uh, agree to it, uh, I think, to the full extent that I do. Finally, Australian Parents for Climate Action. So professionally with the dentist work, technical with the EVs, and then local with the bin rails, and then the political <laughs> path with Australian Parents for Climate Action. Can you start kind of just how you got connected sure. and how you built those connections yeah. with AP4CA and the Solar for Schools yeah. program? I think all the other avenues that we've discussed have probably been the training wheels that have actually kind of got me to then being able to be comfortable to um, lobby politically. Um, so, you know, I, I, I had never thought that I would be someone who would be kind of fairly in your face with politicians and, and candidates uh, on the political trail to get anything done. Ten years ago, I would have been like, the adults will work it out. We've got a healthy democracy. Things will get done. But obviously, with how fast the climate crisis is moving, there's a bit of a lag in terms of leadership. I, I think for me, having done all these other projects gave me enough confidence to say, hey, not only do I feel like I'm well-researched enough on all these topics, but I've kind of got enough confidence in terms of being able to articulate the concern and then wanting to actually see action achieved through the political system. So Australian Parents for Climate Action created the Solar Our Schools campaign. A real tangible way that we can actually decarbonise our economy is actually looking within the education sector. Uh, and the fact that schools are within every single community, they're on and used during the daytime, which means that they pair very, very well with uh, solar panels. Uh, and where uh, our group wanted to take that energy policy was to look at getting federal and state government support to actually install solar and batteries in all public schools and childcare centres across the country to basically form a very wide distributed energy network uh, where we could improve energy resilience in times of, of blackouts. But more recently, we've also found as well is that we've had uh, very large storms and bushfires uh, and actually having solar and batteries allows our community to stay online but also provides them a, a place of uh, safety of last resort in, in the case of a natural disaster. Uh, so that's sort of the message that we were trying to pitch to our politicians. So when we started that campaign, there was looming ahead at the time a state election in South Australia and then a federal election shortly thereafter. It kind of took a bit of a life of its own, really. Like when, once we sort of got started as the federal campaign happened, you know, the whole phenomena of the Teal Independent came into play as well and seats that we'd never thought that would be very strong on climate action all of a sudden. That was the battle line topic. And and we were able to get over 130 pledges, of which several dozen are now currently in Parliament. And, you know, now that they're in, I'm, I'm having follow-up conversations with them, kind of going, hey, now we're, you know, you've, you've been in Parliament for a while now, what's happening? And that leap that you made with AP4CA to start writing letters to MPs, it can often feel, for people who've never done it before, like a bit of a stab in the dark. How did you make that leap and how did you make sense of it? At the end of the day, politicians are people. And yes, they can be gatekeepered and particularly the higher up the tree you go to, there are more hoops to jump into to actually get your voice in. But at the end of the day, they actually care about what their constituents want. But more so if they're in a marginal seat, more so when it's election time, 
which is why I think it's worthwhile to cultivate those relationships because when they do matter, sometimes it's basically the difference that you can make. And we've found that in the course of this year, of all the things that uh, a lot of friends in the local area have been involved with, a lot of them have coalesced around real environmental issues, whether it be losing vital habitat along a main road, about whether or not it's about you know improving cycling infrastructure in the city or safety for cyclists or about improving public transport. These are all things that actually MPs actually care about because at the end of the day, if they can prove that they're actually making a difference in the area, that's actually super important. So I think sometimes it's very easy for us in, in a campaigning mode to really focus on really big, big ticket items or like overall systems change. But, you know, as I've kind of explained around some of the work I've done at a real local level, I think that's a really easy way that people can engage their MPs to say, hey, look, I'm a local resident. Here's a problem I see. Here's how I think we can do it better. Can you meet me on site? And let's talk about these issues. Talk about who we need to be talking about to make a difference on this. And you find that actually most MPs are actually quite receptive to that level of dialogue. And particularly if it's not antagonistic, if it's done in goodwill of improving the area, there's generally a good rapport to that. So I really encourage people to do that. And actually just to get known by your MP, like it's okay to ring up their office and just to leave feedback and say, hey, look, I just noticed your party did this. You know, I either agree or disagree with that action and hear the reasons why. There's there's members of parliament who sit on the opposite end of the political spectrum that I email all the time. They know who I am. They know my points of view. But, you know, it's actually important for them to actually hear these voices because if they don't, they only hear voices on one side and not the other and actually don't realise potentially the policies they're pushing aren't particularly helpful at all. So even within opposites and ends of the political spectrum, they know that actually they'll get to a certain point where they actually need to change their policies because they no longer make sense. And I think increasingly over the next couple of years, you'll probably see that from more conservative parties that, you know, they won't have a fig leaf to hide behind in terms of renewable energy. I mean, you're dealing with some really complicated systems. I've noticed that you take a bird's eye view very much of the system, the levers and the players and the feedback loops. Is that something that helps you when you don't get the result you want to stand back and see what other opportunities there are? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think for me, probably the frustration is probably being a little bit ahead of the curve in actually realising the role of government in decarbonisation. Uh, and I don't really feel that neither the South Australian state government or the federal government have really appreciated a real wholesale effort to actually say our government is res- directly responsible for these emissions through our departments, all the assets and employees that are under our remit. What is our carbon strategy going forward from there? Uh, in my discussions with the Department from Education in South Australia, I mean, they could even provide me with the proper metrics in terms of their overall portfolio of solar. So what the interesting thing is I've actually found the fastest mover towards energy efficiency uh, and solar in the education sector has been from larger private schools who absolutely see it as a no-brainer. They want to see their OPEX costs go down. Uh, they're very acutely and directly responsible for their budgets. So then they move on these things very quickly. So in my discussions of private schools, uh, it's been very sim- it's been a very simple equation. But you know, the thing is that what we were seeing and you know the message we we're trying to convey to both parties was really there's possibly up to $30 million being spent on energy per year, even if you didn't put solar and batteries on every single school. There's a very simple three to five year payback per school uh, were you to install them. And at the very least, the smartest thing to do would be to make it a default for every single new building that went up uh, within the education department's remit. Uh, But that still hasn't been a priority for a department. And, you know, and I understand the politics at play. You kind of want to be able to make a really big announcement that can resonate really well with the community. 
something is just baked into a long-term you know, capital works plan. It's not glamorous. It happens, but people sort of don't notice. But, you know, watch this space. We're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you deal with the deflation or feeling deflated? I think I find the next thing to move on to, so, which is why I've got so many hats. And then invariably, sometimes the threads of one drop off and another one pops back up again. A lot of people more time poor than me who, who might not be able to juggle all of that together. But I think that's what I've found to be helpful is that I've always had something else to move on to as well. And I mean, you have created this amazing opportunity to put some deep attention on things by spending one day a week on climate work. Do you have any idea how other parents who aren't able to take that step might squeeze climate work into the cracks of the full-time working week and juggling family? Yeah, no, absolutely. Start small. I think literally whatever you can fit in that is of interest to you. Like for me, in some respects, it doesn't feel like work. This feels like a hobby, which is a bit bizarre to say. It's a thing that I'm passionate about. And when you work on things that you're passionate about, it doesn't feel like work. So that, that's what I'd strongly encourage. If you have an affinity towards cycling, do something that's cycling related. If you have an affinity towards something in the natural world, do that. I, I think it really helps to be really passionate about what you do because then uh, I think you do end up finding the cracks in time. The important thing is to actually get linked in with other people who are doing things that you are passionate about and just chipping into what they're doing. Like I'm finding the thing that made me really successful in terms of the work that we did is that I'm not a really strong community builder, uh, but other people in the Adelaide parents team are. And, and they were the ones who were really great in terms of being able to coalesce a really uh, good community around us. Uh, but that's just not my strength. So if I'd spent all my time in doing that and getting bogged down in that, I'd completely run out of steam. So it was really helpful having really complementary personalities and skill sets to also be able to allow you to do what you're really good at. And in, in my case, it was being tenacious and being able to put our message in front of people and, and not saying no for an answer. The fact that I moved to South Australia, which I think has an inherent better work-life balance, and I work in a healthcare industry where I can pick my days, and then once I leave work, I leave work at work. I think that allowed me to have the headspace to be able to kind of work on other things. You know, would I be able to do the same back in my previous life in Sydney? Possibly not. We've been fortunate enough that we live in a city that's cheap enough to live in without working full-time. I mean, that was a deliberate choice that we did in order that we could do other things. And you've put so much into all this work. What has it brought back to you? Well, that's a good question. Um, it's kind of changed me as, as a person. I think that I was fairly differential in terms of power structures and, and politics. But then you kind of realise that you find your own voice and you actually have agency in terms of saying, hey, look, these are my views and these are what this is what's important to me. Uh, this is what I think is important for the community around me. And, and I want to become an advocate for these issues and to, to make positive change. And I think that's powerful you know you don't let it go to your head you know someone described to me that this whole election campaign you can fall into what's called a political bloodlust in terms of kind of wanting to take it to the nth degree that's sort of not, not my end goal in terms of gaining power or being seen as an influencer for me what matters are the results uh, so for me you know it's actually those even the small little changes if it's like a little bin rail if it's the fact that dental practice can have a better waste management system, all those things are really important for me. So even though there's no massive kudos known about it, uh, if those actions uh, are implemented and actually make a long-term change, then I'll be super happy about it. And what is next for you? 
after juggling all these different paths and projects? Um, there, there are no big political campaigns in the way from an election standpoint. For me, because of the work I've been doing at the ADA... That's the Dental Association. Yeah, the Dental Association. I've been invited to a federal working committee. There's been a really good group that's been brought together at a federal level. Uh, so it's the first time that in Australia we've actually had everyone in the same room. I, I think this year it's a bit of a, a consolidation year. After we moved into our house, I've kind of breathed a bit of collective relief in terms of getting a lot of things done. I've enjoyed harvesting my, the first crops out of my vegetable garden. That's been amazing. But yeah, I think this year it's about seeing a bit more concrete change within the profession. And potentially as well, I've been looking at providing a EV group buy, potentially in conjunction with some councils to basically help that whole EV adoption process within Adelaide. Yeah, and you talked about harvesting from your new garden. Is that full circle? You talked initially about that Airbnb with the the Fogo composting bin. How does this all fit in? Well, we have an Airbnb now with a Fogo bin. <laughs> Part of our home, we actually, we, we built a little pond instead of a swimming pool. And it's been a delight because we've actually seen it flourish as a natural ecosystem. And actually just seeing from the very beginning, there's some mosquitoes that come in and then the dragonfly larvae eat the mosquitoes. And then the birds come in to eat the dragonflies. There's all these layers within the ecology and actually just being able to sit, you know, morning coffee and breakfast and go, look, I'm actually observing this happening in real time. I see the interconnectedness of the natural water play and, and my part in it. I think then you do end up going, hey, I do need to tread more carefully in terms of what I do as, in, uh, as a human. But also that the fact that we can share the produce with our community as well is also very important. That it's you know not just about your own household. I think that the way that climate change is going to challenge things is that we really need to provide that interconnectedness with our communities to build that resilience rather than putting up walls against each other. So for me, part of that is actually saying, you know, I want to be more connected this year with my community, with what I can share, what I can offer, and then, you know, I guess how other people can help back in return. So, yeah, looking forward to that. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to connect with other families near you, check the show notes for links to Australian Parents for Climate Action. There are also recommendations and resources from Jasper there. And subscribe to Now It Now to hear more conversations with parents and carers about how they're facing up to climate change. Now It Now was recorded on the traditional lands of the Ghana people and the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging.